Welcome to episode 45, The Truth About the Federalist Papers, part 3. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Twitter or Facebook and the topics such as the Federalist Papers, the gender pay gap, student loans, and the cost of college, the Electoral College, or socialism comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a minute and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest Podcast patronage page. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. In the last two episodes, I introduced or reintroduced you to the Federalist Papers and discussed some of the checks and balances in the Constitution via the legislative and executive branches of government. Today we are going to discuss, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. The judicial branch of government, states' rights, taxation, the military, and a brief conversation about two controversial clauses in the Constitution. As I mentioned in the last episode, in Federalist 39, James Madison walks through the particulars of how members of the House of Representatives are elected directly by the people versus the Senate by the state legislatures, and the president indirectly through representatives of the people, the Electoral College. He then turns to the Supreme Court and argues that they will act as objective arbiters to the rules of the Constitution whenever a controversy does arise. Listen to episode 16 for the truth about the Supreme Court for a deep dive on that. In Federalist 78 through 83, Hamilton dives into the judicial branch. He explains, The Constitution creates a judicial branch that will be strong and independent, but this requires that the judges have lifetime tenures. In Essay 79, Hamilton discusses the compensation for judges and how they can be removed from office via impeachment by the House and tried and found guilty by the Senate. He also addresses removal for other reasons, I, for example, insanity or loss of mental faculties. In Federalist 80, Hamilton explains that unlike politicians, judges must be insulated from the ever-shifting emotional state of the electorate so that they have total reverence for the Constitution rather than for whatever popular sentiment arises. Hamilton makes the argument for federal courts in this essay as well as explaining that when a dispute arises between citizens of different states, an impartial federal court is likely the best place for adjudication. This is yet another area of constitutional bastardization. There are only three federal crimes mentioned in the Constitution, piracy, counterfeiting, and treason. Yet we have almost 100 federal district courts that everyone seems to run to. Hamilton argues that the judiciary will always be the least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution because it will be least in a capacity to injure or annoy. That is likely surprising to most modern Americans as we wait every year with bated breath for the Supreme Court opinions to be announced, and we are over and over again subjected to activist opinions and constitutional rights created out of thin air. I want to spend a couple minutes on this quote by Hamilton. Listen carefully. Quote, No legislative act, therefore contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. To deny this would be to affirm that the deputy is greater than his principal, that the servant is above his master, that the representatives of the people are superior to the people themselves. End quote. 
This is probably one of the most important paragraphs of prose in American history, and here's why. First, any law that is passed that is contrary to the Constitution is void. We can and should ignore it, strike it down. That is why there is no enforcement mechanism given to judges. They offer opinions. Number two, who is the deputy, servant, and representative in this quote? That's the federal government or official serving there. Who is the principal or the master? We are. The states are. See, the federal government is a creation of the states. Without them and the Constitution that created it, there is no such thing as a federal government. Yet we have allowed it over the last century to obtain incredible amounts of unconstitutional powers. Okay, back to the judiciary. They are to be faithful guardians of the Constitution, not lifetime tenured bench-sitting wannabe legislatures or activist judges. It's our fault for not pushing back. They are only to maintain their positions during good behavior. I would argue that the bad behavior is acting as an activist or legislating from the bench. Hamilton explains that we don't allow judges to replace their will with their judgment. Here again, we have another example of the abdication of the legislative branch constitutional duty. When was the last time a federal judge was impeached? With all the judicial activism and obvious ignoring of the Constitution, we should be seeing impeachment hearings on a monthly basis until this shit ends. The Constitution, as written, is the supreme law of the land. If you don't like it, amend it. Precedent is fine in most circumstances, but there is no such thing when it comes to the Constitution. As Peter Schiff is fond of saying, it isn't written in Chinese. It is understandable and clear. And as I explained in episode 16, the courts can opine all they want. They are not legislators, and they don't have an enforcement mechanism. Why would the founders grant power to people who are unaccountable to the voters and given a lifetime appointment? So they were given the power to offer opinions, not rulings. See, judges offer opinions, kings offer rulings. Our system is so perverted with the extensive legislating from the bench that has gone on for so much of our history. Things like welfare, abortion, schools, prisons, hiring practices, gay marriage, marijuana, gun control, on and on. None of that stuff's in the Constitution, yet we allow men and women in black robes to create these rights out of thin air. The courts are there to protect the people from dangerous tendencies on the part of some who are maybe conniving or are playing on momentary passions, all of which are contrary to the Constitution. Hamilton argues that once Congress realizes that the courts will put them in their place if they start passing unconstitutional laws, that tendency will go away. The courts are to act as a restraining influence, but exactly the opposite has occurred over the last hundred years, or even longer. We have activist judges lying in wait for leftists to hand their agenda off to them, whether it is something like Obamacare or more recently trying to impede Trump's immigration ban. The left has no shame in using the judiciary to move their unconstitutional agenda forward. And the Republicans just bend over and say, thank you, can I have another? Again, this has been turned on its head due to Congress's unwillingness to discipline activist judges over the decades. So leftists, judge shop, and court shop. The Ninth District in California is the most overturned court in the country by the Supreme Court, but that's where the leftists go with all of their lawsuits over and over again because they know that that court will not follow the Constitution. So now let's turn our attention to states' rights. The most comprehensive essay on this topic is Federalist 17, written by Hamilton. In it, he argues that a new, stronger union is necessary 
but the states will still have more power than the federal government and will certainly have the loyalty of the people on its side. Ouch. Right out of the gate. Houston, we have a problem. In a moment of naivety, Hamilton muses that he doesn't know any reason why those in authority within the general government, the federal government, would ever want to overstep their constitutional bounds and infringe on the rights of the states. Hamilton explains that people are naturally more focused on the issues in their neighborhood or at their state and local levels, and therefore would have a strong bias for their local and state politics over that of the federal government. Clearly the opposite is true. For those Americans who do pay attention to politics, they are way more knowledgeable about our national leaders than they are about their mayor or state legislator or governor. There is very little, if any, attachment to your state anymore. Hell, the current trend is people fleeing high-tax, bankrupt blue states like California, Illinois, and New York for more financially sound, largely red states like Arizona, North, and South Carolina. In Federalist 28, Hamilton explains that the people are to hold the power of the federal government in check to help prevent it from usurping power. The states have more than enough power and motivation to keep the federal government in check, according to Hamilton. Worst case scenario, two-thirds of the state legislatures can call an Article V constitutional convention. Hamilton assumed the state legislators would call BS on the feds whenever necessary. He also assumed that the states would build coalitions among themselves to fend off federal encroachment. What the hell happened? Now you know why I railed about against the 17th Amendment in episode 44. It removed the most tangible weapon that the states had to fend off the feds. Short of repealing the 17th Amendment, the states really need to cut their spending to the bone and stop taking dollars from Washington. Did you know that the average state, 30% of their revenue comes from federal sources? That statistic alone is enough to make every member of the Constitutional Convention roll over in their graves. The amount of power and sway that puts in D.C. is staggering. Think about education spending, infrastructure, welfare programs, agriculture, disaster relief, to name a few. Think about all the government regulations and bureaucracies and how they dictate our daily lives. From the gasoline you put in your car to the sale of the purchase of your home, the speed limit, the food you buy, the food served in public schools, what is taught in public schools. The list goes on and on. If you want to deep dive into state budgets, check out a website called nasbo.org. It stands for National Association of State Budget Officers. The data they provide is really eye-opening. In Federalist 45 and 46, Madison chimes in to argue that the federal government will not be able to infringe on the rights maintained by the states because the central government has only very specific powers. So this essay contains the famous phrase, few and defined and numerous and undefined. The feds will be concentrated on a few and defined things, mainly in external matters such as war, peace, diplomatic negotiations, and foreign commerce. Everything else numerous and undefined, will be left to the states. That is almost laughable at this point in current modern America. Why won't the federal government be able to use its new powers to overrun the states? Because in Madison's mind, the states held all the cards. He goes so far as to speculate that the states would likely abuse the federal government. After all, he argues, the federal government is not essential to the operation of the state governments. Madison questions what degree of madness would drive the federal government to take ambitious encroachments on the authority of the state governments. He just never anticipated the amount of power, control, and money that the feds would garner. He couldn't possibly have fathomed that. He goes on to argue that, number one, the states decide who serves in the federal government, specifically the Senate and the presidential electors. 
Number two, the people would pay more attention or be loyal to their state governments than to some distant central government. Number three, he reiterates the fact that the Constitution only grants the federal government those few and enumerated powers. So really, what harm could the feds do? And I would add that at the time of ratification, a person's state may well have been their country. Remember, the Treaty of Paris recognized the independence of 13 former colonies, not one nation. So loyalty back then lied within the states. Madison goes on to argue that the number of state tax collectors will far outweigh the feds who will focus their attention on the seacoast where they're collecting tariffs. And even if the federal government appoints its own revenue collectors, like the IRS, their influence would be minimal compared to the states. Well, we took care of that by implementing the federal income tax and the employer withholdings and the establishment of the IRS. In Federalist 56, Madison explains that another layer of state protection against federal overreach is the fact that most members of Congress will have at one time or another served in the state legislature, thereby preserving the state's interests in the federal legislature. I think the money and lobbyists in D.C. quickly kills any loyalty to the states from which congressmen arrive. In Federalist 84, during Hamilton's questioning of the need for a Bill of Rights, he goes off on a, a tangent hitting the state's right paradigm by explaining that the rivalry between the state and central governments for power will make it likely that the state governments will keep their citizens informed of any actions that the federal government is taking against the states. His argument is largely still valid, however, the states as a whole do not do enough to fight unconstitutional federal encroachments. His main point is that our God-given rights to liberty and happiness are so self-evident that a Bill of Rights could prove dangerous because it may imply to people that those rights not specifically listed are not held by the people. He basically poses the legitimate question of why are we creating a list of stuff the government can't do when there is no power for them to do it in the first place? He uses the example of why there is a need for freedom of the press when no power exists to restrict freedom of the press. He argued that the Constitution is a Bill of Rights. My takeaway from this series of essays is the states have a constitutional obligation to stand up to overreach from Washington, and for the most part, they do a lousy job. Now let's turn our attention to taxation. As you might expect, Hamilton does the heavy lifting on this topic in a series of eight essays. He explains the need for the Union to raise sufficient revenue through taxes to allow for the execution of its responsibilities. The national government's responsibilities are supporting the national forces, other government employees, payment of the national debts, and all matters requiring disbursements out of the national treasury. So what Hamilton is referring to is deficiencies in the Articles of Confederation. As, it, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the Articles relied on the states to provide the funds rather than the Union taxing directly, which must now be changed according to Hamilton. He argues that prosperity comes from the energies of the people, not from the government. In other words, the private sector drives the economy, not the federal government. The faster that money circulates through the economy, the more the government will have available through taxes. Those taxes were to be used to grow prosperity, not the government. Hamilton goes on to argue that while all levels of government must have the power of taxation, the states and the people must be on guard to ensure that it is used justly. In other words, yes, the federal government will have the power, but the people would never allow them to encroach on their rights. Yeah, right. In Essay 36, Hamilton argues that the feds and the states would never tax the same thing. Oh, you mean like gas, alcoholic beverages, and cigarettes, which are taxed at both the state and federal level? Hell, they may even be local municipalities that take their piece of flesh out of those things, too. Just another example of the perversion of the Constitution we inherited from the founding generation. Regarding raising revenue, 
The proposed solution in this essay is to allow the national government to raise taxes through consumption in the form of duties, excises, and imposts. Consumption taxes, as Hamilton explains, quote, prescribe their own limit, which cannot be exceeded without defeating the end proposed. That is an extension of revenue, end quote. So in other words, if they get too high, the consumption decreases, as does revenue. It's a self-correcting tax. There is no mention of handouts or equality of outcomes or using taxation as a means to social engineer society. No mention of the use of taxes to target or dissuade or reward or punish behaviors. Lots of discussion about men reaping the rewards of their hard work and being left alone from government, though. Up until the 16th Amendment, ratified in 1913, another progressive era moved to tear down the Constitution along with the Federal Reserve and the 17th Amendment, the federal government did not have the power to directly tax citizens. All taxes had to be apportioned among the states per Article I, Section 2, Clause 3, meaning the federal government would tell the states, hey, we need $4 billion. The states would then be responsible for sending their portion of that money, based on population, back to the feds. Which seems reasonable because as your population grows, so too does the state's representation in Congress. Keep in mind the federal government's main source of revenue up until this point was tariffs. They did not need to go after our income. Another tangible step that can be taken is to repeal the employer withholding of income taxes and just require every citizen to pay the IRS individually. Where in the Constitution does it grant the federal government the power to force employers to incur the expense and responsibility of collecting this tax? If the feds want our money, they can come and get it. There are a handful of essays focusing on the military and the militias that I want to touch on very briefly. As you can imagine, there was a lot of concern over standing armies given that they had just fought a war with a rather belligerent British standing army. Alexander Hamilton basically makes the argument that standing armies are necessary, especially considering the fact that the Spanish and the Brits still held territory on the continent, and they had to contend with the Indian tribes. He continued to argue that having one centralized army makes the most sense, otherwise the burden falls unevenly to the states on the borders. In Essay 26, he argues that there is no need to be suspicious of the army because the legislatures must provide for the army, and since the House members face re-election every two years, they really cannot afford to step out of line. Finally, I want to briefly review two topics that I will likely tackle in a full episode in the future, that being two controversial clauses in the Constitution, the necessary and proper, and the supreme law of the land clauses. In Federalist 33, Hamilton tackles both. His argument is simple. The necessary and proper and supreme law of the land clauses are not complicated and should not incite controversy except by those looking to change their meaning. The necessary and proper clause reads as follows. The Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Okay, critical thinkers, what do the words the foregoing powers refer to? That's right, those powers enumerated in the Constitution, which as we know by now are few and defined. Right. Most of these defined powers are listed in Article 1, Section 8, which in a nutshell are six concerning the military and militia, four concerning money and taxes, and there's one each regarding commerce, naturalization and bankruptcies, post office and post roads, copyrights and patents, the federal courts, maritime crimes, and the governance of the District of Columbia. And again, if you want to deep dive into that, check out episode three. So in other words, when it comes to the military, post office and post roads, federal courts, copyrights and patents, etc., Congress has the power to make laws regarding those things. 
duh. The clause really should be called the unnecessary improper clause. Unlike the claims made by modern-day big government progressives, Republicans and Democrats alike, this clause by no means says the federal government can do whatever the hell it wants. And I want to be purposely very clear and blunt here. Anyone who articulates that argument is either ignorant or a cheerleader for an ever-expanding, out-of-control federal government, and quite frankly are an enemy to the constitutional republic we inherited from our founding fathers. See what happens when you start connecting the dots? You recognize just how far we have strayed from the constitutional mandate. It's really sad. Hamilton goes on to argue that should the feds ever go beyond their proper boundaries, the people who are the feds' masters must take appropriate action and reverse the violations of the Constitution. This is where the concept of nullification comes in. We discussed this earlier. Please listen to episode 23 for this little understood concept that is rarely taught in public schools. In a nutshell, this truth states that unconstitutional laws are null and void. Therefore, they shouldn't be ignored and attacked in court. That includes unconstitutional laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, and it includes opinions issued by the Supreme Court. None of these entities or people get the, to decide what is constitutional. It's absurd to think that 330 million people allow 545 people to dictate what the Constitution says. It's not hard to understand. The Supremacy Clause offers a similar challenge. Article 4, Paragraph 2 states, quote, The Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made, under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary notwithstanding, end quote. Okay, critical thinkers in the audience, I'm giving you another opportunity to shine. What do the words in pursuance thereof refer to? As Hamilton explains, that the clause explicitly confines the supremacy of those laws made in pursuance to the Constitution. Just like the Necessary and Proper Clause, this one by no means says the federal government can do whatever the hell it wants because what they say is the supreme law of the land. The Constitution the words on that document are the supreme law of the land, not whatever bullshit Congress or the President or the Supreme Court comes up with 230 years after the document was drafted. Hamilton uses the example of a federal tax. That is the supreme law of the land, and the states cannot legally oppose it. However, a federal law that interferes with a state tax would not be the supreme law of the land. The Constitution was very clear about the sandbox in which the federal government was to be confined to, Unfortunately, all four walls of the box have been severely damaged, and there is sand everywhere. So if you have listened to episode 43 and 44, you know that at the end of each, I listed many of the perversions of the Constitution, including the Permanent Apportionment Act of 1929, the 16th and 17th Amendment, the lack of Congress's declaration of war, federal welfare benefits, federal involvement in education, the Supreme Court and other federal courts legislating from the bench, Social Security, uh, executive orders and signing statements. And from this episode, we can now add the Federal Reserve and the employer withholding of income taxes. And that is far from an exhaustive list. Any way you look at it, it's a pretty ugly picture. After going through the Federalist Papers, I found this quote by Michael Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Seminar to sum up my feelings well. Quote, While the states still exist, in practice, the national government has swept them into virtual irrelevance, with almost all power and authority centered in Washington, D.C. 
It's important to remember this was not the system of government the American people wanted or approved. Hamilton and other advocates swore it would never come to this. The government you see today was not the plan. End quote. I don't want to conclude these three Federalist Paper episodes on a down note. I prefer to offer solutions. But short of abolishing the Federal Reserve, privatizing Social Security, repealing the 16th, 17th Amendments, and the Permanent Apportionment Act of 1929, and getting rid of the employer withholding of income taxes, all radical and highly, highly unlikely, there are alternatives. One of them is an ACLU-like organization whose sole mission is to sue the federal government over and over and over again for unconstitutional acts, policies, laws, and regulations. This is an idea that Charles Murray put forth in his book, By the People. The idea being that the feds cannot afford to defend hundreds or thousands of lawsuits. They simply do not have enough attorneys, and eventually there would be a breaking point. It's a brilliant outside-the-box solution, and not that outlandish, especially if the organization partners with state attorneys general. Murray concludes his book with this quote, quote, The federal government was created with one overriding duty, to allow us to live freely as we see fit, as long as we accord the same right to everyone else. It has betrayed that duty, end quote. And I would add, it has betrayed that duty in a big way. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.